Well, during World War II, uh, which occurred between the years of 1938 and 1945, it is estimated that between 70 and 85 million people died worldwide. This includes military and civilian fatalities directly caused by the fighting of the war and the millions who died from the after effects of the war to include disease, famine, and other uh, horrible consequences of fighting wars, especially on this scale. This, like all wars, was a brutal war. Millions died at the hands of ruthless and evil armies invading their lands. Millions died during the massive bombing raids over Europe and Asia. Millions died because of the brutality and starvation and concentration and prisoner of war camps. All told, 3% of the world population at that time died in the largest war our world has ever known. And here is the town of Oradour sur glane After the war, devastated, thousands of people killed or displaced, lying in ruin, left as a memorial. But it is not alone in its terror and destruction. Here's a picture of what the Germans did to London during what they called the Blitz in 1941. And here's here's Dresden, what the Allies did to Germany four years later in 1945. Here's a picture of Pearl Harbor, Japan's attack on the United States before declaring war. And four years later, here's Tokyo after being firebombed night after night in 1945. Do you know who this pic is of? This is the Archduke Franz Ferdinand, Prince of the Austro-Hungarian Kingdom in 1914. And who, unbeknownst to his enemies, the people who lived in his kingdom, who hated him, was planning to improve the lives of the ethnic peoples and the relations with these peoples once his father, the king, passed away and he assumed power. Unfortunately, before he could make these changes, he was assassinated in 1914 by this Bosnian man, Gavrilo Princip. You see, the Austrians and the Bosnians hated each other. And they each had alliances with larger and more powerful nations, So once the Bosnian killed the Austrian prince and Austria invaded Bosnia and they declared war on each other, all these alliances kicked in and you soon had a world war 30 years prior to the Second World War started in just a couple of months. Four years later, at the end of that war, 38 million people had died from that conflict. If we look at history in our world today, we can see throughout our history that we definitely are a world at war. One report I read attempting to record the history of war on the earth uh, going back thousands of years says this, that over the past 3,400 years, humans have been entirely at peace for only 268 of those years. That's just 8% of the years in recorded history. There has not been a declared war on the earth. We are a world and a species of people who are always at war. But it isn't just international wars that reveal this. We have our own hostility and warfare inside of our countries. The countless civil wars that have erupted within nations throughout history. Think of all the hatred and violence that has been committed against people and people groups within countries. Subjugation of people because of their skin color, their economic standing, their ethnic heritage, the religion that they practice. But warfare and the terrors of war were nothing new to Israel or Judah either. In fact, under King David and Solomon, Israel was a mighty nation winning wars and subjugating its enemies in the same way. However, once they abandoned God and their covenant with God, Israel and later Judah became victims of the wars that were constantly fought around them and in many cases against them. So Judah 
in the time of the prophet Isaiah, was a country very familiar with war and its horrible consequences to a nation and its people. But God made some promises. God made some wonderful and probably somewhat unbelievable promises to his people. God promised his people a future of peace. He promised them that one day there would be no more war, no more hostility, no more death. And Judah longed for a day of peace for Jerusalem and for their entire nation. In fact, God has promised us the same thing, the same future, a future of peace. We are his people. And the promise he made with Israel and Judah, he has also made with us as well. And that is what we'll be talking about today in our next message in a series we are calling Promises, Promises. And our message title today is The Promise of Peace in a World at War. But just how hostile and war-ravaged was Judah at this time? What kind of world was Isaiah living in? What kind of situations was he preaching into? There's a couple different manifestations of this that we, we know from the nation of Judah. The first is the international discord, or the, the wars between the nations outside of Judah. Now, the nation Israel split in two after King Solomon died, right? There was a northern kingdom that maintained the name Israel, a southern kingdom that held the name Judah. They had their own civil war. And the northern kingdom plunged itself into wickedness and evil in the years to follow. And within a couple centuries, the great Assyrian army had come in, invaded, conquered, and dispersed the people, leaving almost no trace of the nation of Israel. Ten of the original 12 tribes from Israel. Judah, the southern kingdom, was more righteous than uh, the northern kingdom, Israel, not by much, but by enough. That when the Assyrian army camped on their doorstep, they actually survived the Assyrian invasion through a miraculous act of God and continued to exist, but as if on a knife edge. Because around them was this Assyrian empire, they had the Egyptian empire, they had the Babylonian empire, and they were this small nation just trying to navigate their way through more powerful empires who cared nothing about them. Judah also had old vendettas in smaller nations that lived in the region, even in some of their areas that were technically part of Judah. There were the Moabites, the Edomites, the Amorites, the Philistine, the Gibeonites, just to name some of their sworn enemies from centuries old vendettas and divisions who were always a threat and always causing trouble for the people of Judah. All these dangers, all these nations with ill intent toward them. And remember, there were no fences on their borders. There were no defensive walls on the borders of those countries. The only walls that existed were around the cities. The people who lived in the countryside, the villages, completely vulnerable to attack from any and every hostile people that would seek to come into a country. Sadly, the poor and the common people of Judah, the innocent and the powerless, those just trying to live their lives day after day, they usually get caught up in the worst of the warfare and often suffer the worst through it all. And this is still present in our world today, right? Think of all the wars and battles fought in the world, some of which I talked about in the beginning, but just a couple of the hundreds and thousands that have taken place. Think of the evil and terror that has been wrought on everyone during a war. No one is exempt. Nobody escapes it. Now, we haven't had a global war in 75 years like we saw in World War II, and the earth is better for it. But half a million 
Syrians died in their war last decade. 300,000 Bosnians died in the Balkans in the 90s. Over a million Afghanis died when the Soviets invaded their country in the 80s. And I could continue. Incident after incident, war after war. In this context, and we need to remember this, we Americans are more privileged than we could ever truly imagine. There are two massive bodies of water on our eastern and western border called the Atlantic and Pacific Ocean. They are a gift from God for our nation. They have protected protected us from probable invasion numerous times throughout our nation's history. Our country's losses in the wars we have fought have been minor compared to the countries where the battles were actually fought. The only exception to this was the Civil War. And in that war, 700,000 Americans died. It can be hard for us Americans to understand how other countries have lived precarious existences because of the dangers around them that have not been present around us. Not only that, but one of the two nations that does border our country directly and could be a threat to us is Canada, who are literally the nicest people you will ever meet, eh? There's little to no thought of having to fight a war on our soil. This is not the life of Israel or of Judah, the one they experienced who lived with the threat of war daily. It was not just international wars that threatened Judah either, though. They were a divided country, just like countries today. They had much conflict and discord within their own nation, which is what I'm calling the conflict within nations or within a nation. You had the false prophets who preached against God, the words that the wicked kings wanted to hear, versus the true prophets who preached God's message, who the the true, the good kings wanted, right? And they each had factions, and those factions were always at odds with each other. You had the arrogant religious leaders who abused and took advantage of the poor and the devout commoners who just wanted to live life and serve God. You had God-honoring kings who had their followers, who were followed by wicked kings who got rid of the, who desecrated the temple and raised up idol worship, idols to worship. And they had their people, but then a good king would come along and tear down the idols and you'd have the good king back in place. And you can imagine the back and forth and the hostility present in Judah in this time through all of this. And you know, we see the same division within countries in our world today. It's been 27 years since Rwanda happened. No war in Rwanda, if you don't know the story. Just ethnic hatred in one country. The Hutus came to power, felt like they had some old scores to settle from centuries-old divisions. And in a period of 100 days, because they controlled the military... They killed somewhere between half a million to a million Tutsi people within their own nation. 100 days. And then close to home, on our southern border, there's an ongoing drug war in Mexico. You might not know about it, just south of the border. And anytime two conflicting drug gangs, families, whatever they call themselves, come into conflict, there's a brutal viciousness in the areas where they fight. And we've been going to Mexico for 20 years, serving people, making friends, building houses. We've never had any trouble. But when there's a dust-up throughout the year, our friends, people whom we love, they're in danger. At any moment, the life that they live could be taken from them or turned upside down. We have no idea what it's like to live in that type of world. But here in our own country, hostility and warfare is present. 
Politics is always at the ready to divide people, friends, families, and feels like this division is growing more and more over the past decade. We all could attest to that. Racial hostility has existed in our country for centuries and attempts to make it better, for example, were met with violence and hatred. In the 60s, during the civil rights marches, you'd have peaceful marches for equality that were met with attacks directed by politicians in cities who didn't want equality and would send the police after them to attack these demonstrations. Years later, in the 90s, those of you who were around then remember, you had the brutal treatment of a man named Rodney King at the hands of police officers in California. Should have been addressed effectively, but it led to riots and large sections of the city of Los Angeles destroyed. Innocent people who had nothing to do with the police incident themselves lost everything in the chaos that followed. And it continues today. In the aftermath of George Floyd's death last summer, there were marches for change. There were people who wanted to make sincere and legitimate change. And they acted. But there was also rioting and looting and destruction of property and hostility. In case you're wondering, it's not going to end. Not this side of heaven, not this side of Jesus' return as the one righteous king the one just king. But that is exactly what God is promising to Judah and to Israel. And that is a promise that he gives to us here today as well. So let's read some of these promises in the book of Isaiah that Isaiah wrote to his people back 2,600 years ago about a future peace that would happen. Isaiah chapter 32, beginning in verse 14, for the palace is forsaken. The populous city deserted. The hill and the watchtower will become dens forever. A joy of wild donkeys, a pasture of flocks. Until the Spirit is poured upon us from on high and the wilderness becomes a fruitful field and the fruitful field is deemed a forest. Then justice will dwell in the wilderness and righteousness abide in the fruitful field. And the effect of righteousness will be peace. And the result of righteousness, quietness and trust forever. My people will abide in a peaceful habitation and secure dwellings and in quiet resting places. And it will hail when the forest falls down and the city will be utterly laid low. Happy are you who sow beside all waters, who let the feet of the ox and the donkey range free. And then in Isaiah 52, later in the chapter, verses 6 through 7, this is what Isaiah writes. Therefore my people shall know my name. Therefore in that day they shall know that it is I who speak. Here I am. How beautiful upon the mountains are the feet of Him who brings good news, who publishes peace, who brings good news of happiness, who publishes salvation, who says to Zion, your God reigns. Earlier in the chapter, in Isaiah chapter 11, we get this promise. The wolf shall dwell with the lamb and the leopard shall lie down with the young goat and the calf and the lion and the fattened calf together and the little child shall lead them. The cow and the bear shall graze. Their young shall lie down together and the lion shall eat straw like the ox. Enemies from the beginning of time will one day come together and lie down together in peace. This is God's promise for us in this world. And then in Isaiah 66, the very last chapter of the book, this is what Isaiah writes. 
Verse 12, For thus says the Lord, Behold, I will extend peace to her like a river, and the glory of the nations like an overflowing stream. And you shall nurse, you shall be carried upon her hip and bounced upon her knees, as one whom his mother comforts. So I will comfort you, you shall be comforted in Jerusalem. You shall see and your heart shall rejoice. Your bones shall flourish like grass and the hand of the Lord shall be known to His servants and He shall show His indignation against His enemies. These battles, these wars, these attempts we see all around us to extend the power and glory of one nation above another, of one people above another people at the expense of lesser nations and innocent people, this will come to an end. Now Isaiah is not speaking of a time that has yet happened. Because Jerusalem and the people of Israel have not seen this fulfillment that he's talked about in the 2600 years since he's said these words. Shortly after his preaching, Judah was taken into captivity by the Babylonians. When they returned, they did not rule the land. They were subject to the forces in the land. Shortly thereafter, the Greeks came in and brutalized them and persecuted them severely. And after the Greeks, the Romans came in and brutalized them and persecuted them severely. So much so that in 70 AD, the Romans literally destroyed the city of Jerusalem, left, laid waste to it, laid waste to the nation, and Israel ceased to exist at that moment forever. Or until it reformed here within the last hundred years. But even then, Israel, which did reform as a nation back in the 40s, many debate whether that's the Bible-prophesied nation of Israel. Some people think it calls itself Israel, but it's not. The biblical promise, the recipient of God's promises there. Some say it is, some say it isn't. This is an issue debated within the Christian world. But if it is... Israel's existence is still perilous and has been since it was first granted nation status by the United Nations back in 48. Nothing like the peace promised in the book of Isaiah. No, Isaiah is speaking of a future peace, similar to a time in the future that is spoken of in the book of Revelation. And if you don't know, Revelation is the prophetic book that God gave to John when he was exiled to the island of Patmos about how the future ends for all of us. And in Revelation 19, these are the words that John gives to us from God. Then I saw heaven opened, and behold, a white horse, the one sitting on it, is called Faithful and True. And in righteousness he judges and makes war. His eyes are like a flame of fire, and on his head are many diadems. And he has a name written that no one knows but himself. He is clothed in a robe dipped in blood. And the name by which he is called is the Word of God. And the armies of heaven, arrayed in fine linen, white and pure, were following him on white horses. From his mouth comes a sharp sword with which to strike down the nations. And he will rule them with a rod of iron. He will tread the winepress of the fury of the wrath of God the Almighty. On his robe and on his thigh, he has a name written, King of Kings and Lord of Lords. All of these... And there are other promises like them. Are God's promise to a war-torn people that there is a day coming that will truly be filled with peace led by the Prince of Peace, which is a name the Bible gives to Jesus Christ himself. Now this is the New Testament promise of peace that matches the promise of Isaiah to the people of Judah. When God will finally come and put an end to the wars, to the evil, to the sinfulness in this world. 
There is a moment when Jesus will come and he will make it all right. He will make it all good once and for all. If you continue reading in Revelation, the Apostle John describes a beautiful and a peaceful world where God and his people, us, dwell together in harmony. No sin, no evil dividing us, keeping us separate from him. If you've not read Revelation lately, read the last three, four chapters. I encourage you, in a world that's growing increasingly acrimonious, you'll find it comforting and encouraging to know that God knows how this all ends and maps it out pretty clearly. God, whether it looks like it or not, is presently in control of the world in which we live and will always be in control until he brings about his kingdom fully on this earth. Amen? Amen. Amen. And we need to remember that always. We always must remember that God is in control and he will end it in accordance with his will in peace. But what do we do in the meantime? What do we do with today, right? Jesus has not left us today before this fulfillment of this prophecy bereft, void of answers, without options. No. While on earth Jesus talked of a kingdom, not one of weapons or of conquest, but a kingdom of the heart. Jesus, through his wonderfully loving and perfect life, and then through his sacrificial death for our sins and for sin in general, set us free from the curse and the bondage of sin. And in doing so, he gave us spiritual freedom from the effects of a sinful world that you and I live in, that you and I feel each and every day of our lives. We are not subject to our feelings. We are not subject to our thoughts. We have power to overcome them. This is written to us numerous times, this supernatural peace, this spiritual peace. Jesus talks about it in John 14. He says this, Peace I leave with you. My peace I give to you. Not as the world gives do I give to you. This is not a worldly peace. Let not your hearts be troubled, neither let them be afraid. And later in John 16.33, he says this, I have said these things to you that in me you may have peace. In the world, you will have tribulation. You will have struggle. You will have hostility. It will not be the way it's supposed to be. But take heart. Jesus says, I've overcome the world. Paul gives an amazing promise in Philippians chapter 4. Most, some of you know it. Hopefully most of you. If not, write this verse down. I have prayed this verse. I have believed it, I have stated it, when I've been without peace, when I've been anxious, when I've felt like there was no recourse, all I've had was this verse on my lips, and I've said it dozens, if not hundreds of times. Do not be anxious about anything, but in everything by prayer and supplication with thanksgiving, let your requests be made known to God and the peace of God, which surpasses all understanding will guard your hearts and your minds in Christ Jesus. This is a promise. This is a promise for you and for me to read, to believe, to hide, to live our lives based upon that when we think and the world around us is in chaos and it's tempting us to live in chaos as well, we need not do so. We can let our request made known to God and we can receive the peace that only God can give. 
Anybody here ever received supernatural peace from the Lord? Yes, you have. You know these words are true and they're there for us. Do not discount the power of Scripture, repeating it over and over when all your feelings say otherwise, but the words say the promises of God. Sometimes that's all we have are God's promises to hold on to. And then Galatians 5, 22 and 23. Whatever is happening in our world, whatever is happening around us, whatever is coming against us, however we might think we need to respond, this is how the followers of Jesus are told they can respond if they will trust the Lord. But the fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control. And here's the key. Against such things there is no law. There is nothing that has to steal any of these things from you. The supernatural peace of God is available to us as children. Now this isn't easy. We face stark and scary and difficult enemies and obstacles in our lives. But nonetheless, God invites us to pursue him for his peace. What does this look like for us today? Well, we can't make countries change foreign policy, right? We can't make nations not go to war or not have hostilities with each other. But we do have the Holy Spirit and a supernatural power in our lives over our feelings and over our thoughts, which is really important. Because some of us here today think we are victims to our feelings and our thoughts. And that is a lie. You are not a victim to your feelings or your thoughts. God's Word tells us that through His Spirit and the power of the risen Christ in us, we can overcome those things which have haunted us and continue to haunt us even up to this day. And we can start making a difference by bringing about peace in our world and with those we come into contact with. Is there a relationship in your life that is currently what you might call hostile? Is there someone in your life with whom you are in conflict and there's no present action to address it? That is one of the things Jesus is talking about. This internal conflict, this internal waging of war that we have with friends, family, neighbors, coworkers, whomever it might be that's in our circle currently. You and me as followers with the Holy Spirit inside of us, we are God's ambassadors, armed with His power and supernatural peace to bring peace and harmony into what is currently broken in our world. And that might be overwhelming and intimidating at the thought of it, but it's nonetheless true. When my grandpa remarried after my grandma died, they'd been married for 42 years. He came home from World War II. They got married. They had a wonderful 42 years together. But then she died very suddenly in her early 60s. Grandpa mourned, was single for three years, and met this wonderful woman named Signa. After courting for a while, he asked her to marry him. Well, as is not uncommon, members of my family who loved grandma and missed her a lot didn't like Signa. They're bitter, they're angry, they're withdrawn. I'd hear comments made, I'd see the way that people responded. And I thought, why? God took grandma home. We know where she is. She had a wonderful 42 years. Obviously, God has now brought this new woman into grandpa's life. And so when the rest of the family, I felt, was withdrawn and divisive, I decided as a 20-something, no, I'm going to love Grandma Signa. I'm going to engage her and get to know her. And I did and had a wonderful relationship with her. Her and grandpa were married for 25 years until he lost her three, four years ago. 
He had a wonderful second run. And you know what? Cigna awakened things in my grandpa. As wonderful as his marriage with grandma was for 42 years, she was different. And he experienced a new joy in the second wonderful union that God had granted. But we, in our humanness, we don't like that. There was discord. And God asked me to, to lead in that. And so I, I wanted to, and I said yes. Do you have a situation in your life, in your family, in your workplace? Maybe you and your spouse are at odds right now. And I'm not going to claim to minimize the severity of that and the depth of that and how hurtful that is. But Jesus tells us that he wants to bring peace to that relationship. Maybe there's division between a parent and child, old grievance or grievances that have built walls of division within a family or amongst siblings. And those walls now just exist. And we don't talk about them or we don't deal with them. Maybe you're struggling under the oppressive thumb of a coworker or a boss who mistreats you. It's not fair and it gets at you, it eats at you and you're, you're angry and you're tempted to be bitter and vindictive and to gossip and to speak against them. Just so you know, Christians have been mistreated and treated unjustly for thousands of years. And Jesus says to love your enemies and to pray for those who treat you in that way. Jesus offers us peace, a supernatural power to overcome these hostilities, to be ambassadors of peace, entering into the conflict and not avoiding it or running from it. And then this past year, some bigger issues have been revealed to us. I want to close with these. Is there some lingering bias or resentment towards persons or peoples in your neighborhood, here in St. Louis, maybe even in this room today? With all the racial tension that we've seen since George Floyd and the other examples of uh, brutality towards people of color. And then the response, you have the back the blue, and then you have back Black Lives Matters and these warring factions or what appear to be warring. It's real easy to pick a side. We need to be reminded that neither of these groups... Neither of them that I just mentioned has the gospel of Jesus Christ or the kingdom of God at its center. If you had made your alliance with either of these, you have placed it in an earthly kingdom if you in the process have surrendered your heavenly kingdom. We Christians cannot do that. As we feel compelled to act, where is God's peace in the equation? The line... And it, Frustrates me when I see it. No justice, no peace. Meant to encourage activism, right? Jesus would not agree. His supernatural peace is always available. Christians have been treated unjustly for millennia, and they have found peace in God, true peace. In fact, if we choose to act like the secular world in these instances, while we may have a political change made of some sort, the opportunity to be seen as followers of Jesus is surrendered. When the world around us is becoming angry and bitter and vindictive and taking sides, it's the Christians who can advocate in peace, who can be zealous without surrendering their obedience, their righteousness. That's when they're going to see Jesus, and that's when they're going to ask the question, what's different about you? And a heavenly kingdom can be advanced rather than just an earthly kingdom, which too many people are settling for. We are different we are not of this world. Our kingdom is of a heavenly place. And no matter how deeply we feel about something, we cannot surrender our heavenly and eternal responsibilities.
And then finally, we have the COVID fears. Has COVID and the health concerns that come with them robbed you of your peace? Has COVID and the freedom concerns that come with them robbed you of your peace? Newsflash, you're still free. Whether someone is telling you you have to wear a mask or someone you think should be wearing a mask is not wearing a mask, you're still free. We need to remember that. The presence of COVID is not justification for a follower of Jesus to give up their kindness, their joy, their gentleness, and most definitely not their peace. However concerned we are for people's health or medical well-being or the freedom related to that, if that concern or focus has taken our peace, has encouraged us to resent those who, we don't, who don't agree with us, then it is sin. And that's what happens when we become anxious about those things. What do we do? We find people who agree with us. And when I'm anxious about something and I'm together with another person who's anxious about something, what do we do? We talk. We gossip. We entrench ourselves in things that are lesser than what God would have us do. We form little factions. And we encourage the flesh and the sinfulness in each other. We should be calling each other out of walls, out of hostility, out of separation. Even when our physical health is on the line, it's not worth the spiritual erosion of our soul. And some of you know that. Some of you on one side and on the other, you know this. If you're honest with yourself, you've gotten into groups and you've talked and you've complained. And in your complaints, you've given the devil a foothold to do all that he might have done and might still be doing. This is the challenge, my brothers and sisters, my friends. This is the challenge. We are living in a world of people who think differently, who act differently, who are different, and who, like us, are riddled with sin, unfortunately. Our natural impulse is to be angry, divisive, judgmental, to withdraw from them and build walls. Wherever we are at, whatever position we take on whatever subject, if we surrender our peace, then we have surrendered obedience to God, period. So today, pursue peace. Extend a smile. Those of you who haven't dropped your mask in a long time, if you see somebody, there could be discord. Just for a moment, smile. You know, hugs, they're okay. I think even the medical people would say a quick hug probably is not going to be too terrible. We must make love and the pursuit of peace a primary objective as people of God. We can't forget the words of Jesus in John 14, 27. Peace I leave with you. My peace I give to you. Not as the world gives do I give to you. Let not your hearts be troubled, neither let them be afraid.